Welcome back to the Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast, where we will explore the local arts culture and community in the Lehigh Valley. We'll be doing this through conversations with individual artists, administrators, and organizations. We'll discuss all types of mediums with the goal of enriching local arts culture. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast. I'm Ben, and today's episode will be a conversation between Elise, Katie Hovenkamp, and Devin Briggs. Katie Hovenkamp received her BFA from Arizona State University in 2009 and her MFA from the Pennsylvania State University in 2014. Hovenkamp has exhibited her work in numerous exhibitions within the United States, Europe, and Asia. Her work has been reviewed in Sculpture Magazine, Chicago Reader, and several online and print publications. She was the recipient of the Outstanding Student Achievement Award for Contemporary Sculpture in 2014 and the University Graduate Fellowship at the Pennsylvania State University in 2012. Hovenkamp has partnered in residency programs at Vermont Studio Center, Serdi Interdisciplinary Art Group in Latvia, and the Tyrone Guthrie Center in Ireland. In 2016, she was awarded an artist residency with International Sculpture Center at Mana Contemporary in Jersey City, New Jersey. She has taught at various institutions, such as the Edna Veal Center for the Arts, Tots Gap Art Institute, Pennsylvania State University, Harrisburg Area Community College, Keystone College, and Northampton Community College. Devin Briggs grew up in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and studied at the Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore, Maryland. She studied drawing, painting, sculpture, fiber arts, and ceramics, and earned a BFA with a major in ceramics in 2013. She then earned a master's degree in the business of art and design, studying creative entrepreneurship before opening a studio at the Banana Factory in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. In addition to making art, Devin is an educator and arts activist dedicated to fostering equity and inclusion within the Lehigh Valley arts community. She has worked in numerous areas of the arts world, including fine art collection management, creative startups, community and public art, and nonprofit management. She currently works at Northampton Community College as a career readiness specialist empowering students to start successful careers and as an adjunct instructor in the arts department. She previously served on CACLV's Color Outside the Lines Quality of Life Committee and as an advisory board member of the Guild of Creative Citizens, a nonprofit dedicated to arts equity in the Lehigh Valley. She is an active member of the Juneteenth Lehigh Valley Steering Committee and African American Business Leaders Council Events Committee. Katie and Devin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, exciting. Uh, So I'm so excited to have you both here. And this is actually our first episode that we've had structured in this kind of way where neither of you have been on the show before. And we're just really here to talk about your artwork. So I'll kick it off with how did the two of you meet? I can start. So we... It's actually funny because we're both in the banana factory um, down in Southside Bethlehem and we're next door neighbors. Um, I was actually in her studio space um, and then I moved right next door and then she moved in. But honestly, I don't think we even spoke to each other for a while. We had different Mm -hmm. hours. We didn't really see each other. Um, And so it wasn't until a mutual friend um, just kind of got us together for kind of like a aperitivo at my house. Um, and then from there we hit it off. We realized we were both working at NCC and we had a lot of things in common. So I don't know. Was that, that was pandemic, right? Yeah. Was pandemic really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. is when we started to really get to know each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. 
full confession, uh, the reason that I asked you both to come on the same episode was because I happened upon one of your studios on a first Friday and you guys were in there talking and you were cracking me up. I was like <laughs> looking at, uh, I think it was in Devon City. I was looking at the art on the wall and you guys were sitting in there and I was like, these women are hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, ah, I like filed it in the f- file folder in my brain for later. So I'm very, very happy that you're both here. Yeah. And sometimes we always talk, like we talk over the wall to each other too so (laughs) that's awesome very cool great well we're again here to talk about your artwork and you both uh prior to coming on shared some really beautiful pieces but i'd like to just hear a little bit from both of you about how you got started making art yeah so i started i went to art school i mean obviously i was i went to high school here i was at freedom and um had a great art teacher. For those of you listening, maybe you know Mrs. Dorenzo from Freedom High School. Um, shout out. And so I decided to go to art school after her class. Did my four years at MICA, Maryland Institute College of Art, down in Baltimore. Um, and then I did a one-year master's program that was actually low residency. So I was there for 14 months and then also living in Brooklyn doing an internship. And right when that finished, I got the call from Banana Factory to get a studio. And so that's when I really launched kind of what I would call a professional art career. And yeah, I've been doing it ever since. Wonderful. Um, <clears throat> I started going to, um, sorry, let me restart here. For, um, I went to high school locally around here. I ended up going to Pius Tenth, which uh, no longer exists anymore. I believe they closed down around 2015. But mm-hmm. I also had a really inspirational high school art teacher. Her name was Gina Devlin. And I think she's actually teaching up here in Bethlehem now. And she really inspired me to go to art school. So I ended up making a pretty drastic change after high school. I went to Arizona State for my bachelor's, and I lived out in the Phoenix area for five years. And then eventually I decided I wanted to be back in the Northeast, a little closer to family. So I worked in New York City for two years at the Leroy Neiman Arts Center in Harlem. And then after that, I decided I really wanted to go to graduate school and, you know, really get more fine-tuned with studying sculpture. So I went and got my master's at Penn State, the main campus. And then I started looking for teaching jobs and I've been teaching at several colleges in central Pennsylvania and Northeast Pennsylvania. And now I'm at NCC and I love it. And both of your journeys into kind of like coming into this professional artist setting, it sounds like you both had very uh, formative early education teachers, which is really cool. I always really like to hear that. And I think I credit like my music teachers and art teachers in high school to kind of getting me into what I do today. But I'm curious, like, uh, where do you think that that bug like first kind of bit? Did you have um, artwork in high school or artwork in your young college years that you really felt was like formative or reflective of your practice today? Or is it something that you kind of developed later? That's a really good question, and I, I and I really like that question. Um, yeah, I I noticed that you know the way I personally make artwork is I kind of work in cycles where, you know, a theme will start off and then it'll evolve, but then sometimes it'll come back to something you know I've made in in the past. Like a lot of my previous work in uh, undergraduate when I was Arizona State had a lot to do with like fairy tales and fantasy and you know picking apart the fairy tale archetypes but then 
as I went to college, you know, further along when I got my master's, I started picking apart the roles more, particularly focusing on women's roles or people who identify as women in fairy tales. Hmm. And I started to pick that apart even more, but um, in different ways. For me, art was always a way to understand and express like the culture I grew up with, my heritage. Um, and so for me, I, I, it was the only way I was able to kind of make sense of it. And I think now I'm figuring that out, but as I look back, but I was just following an impulse really to just be creative and do what I liked. And I was very academic in high school. Um, I definitely saw my life going very differently until I made that decision to go to art school. Um, and then even, and I was going to ask you this, Katie, after I say this, because I was in art school and had no idea what I was going to do after. I really didn't. I did not know if I'd have a professional art practice. I didn't really think of getting an M for, going for an MFA, and I, I didn't go for an MFA. Um, I definitely, I told myself, like, I am never, ever going to teach. Like, no, not for me. Um, and so I didn't really have a plan, and life just kind of happens. Um, and then I was in a job where I was surrounded by artists, surrounded by art all the time, and really got to see how these different artists made their whole careers as artists. So, I mean, we're talking people who are like in their 80s and 90s to those just starting out, specifically in the African-American art world. And I think it was that point that I realized, okay, this could be something sustainable um, and that it could look a lot of different ways. So, you know, I in general, my practice is kind of split between teaching and administration. Um, and that's the career I'm, I'm building for myself where, yeah, it's just kind of a 50-50 split for me at this point. Yeah, I think, um, you know, whenever you leave an educational program, I think there's always like a big challenge to figure out, you know, mm -hmm. what you want to do. And I mean, personally, what I did was I kind of cast a wide net you know, of different opportunities that seemed like they would be interesting to me or just kind of where I ended up. Like, I've always liked teaching, but I didn't know if I'd ultimately end up doing that. And, you know, when I first graduated, I ended up working in New York for a couple years. And I was working at an art gallery, but then also doing some educational opportunities. And then, you know, when I went to graduate school, I had an opportunity to, to teach. And, you know, then after I left graduate school, I did one artist residency at Vermont Studio Center. And then, you know, I ended up falling back into teaching again. But I applied for a ton of different opportunities. And I just kind of, you know, let Jesus take the wheel, I guess you could say. <laughs> <laughs> but um, and, and then I ended up where I ended up, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, I think just kind of being open you know, to where life will take you when yeah. it comes to any arts opportunities. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good way to, to go because when you try and force yourself to be in this certain box, I think that's where, where artists could kind of run into trouble. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I work in career development at NCC. That is my full-time gig for the moment. And I can't help but think of everything in that way. So even when I'm teaching at NCC, that's something I always tell my students, like, be prepared, give yourself a lot of options, give yourself room to explore, to jump around, um, but don't expect to know the plan, don't expect to know every opportunity that's gonna come, but just make sure you have your options open. So that's the one thing I always tell young people, it's like, listen, you, you're not gonna have it figured out. I know, I never went to career development in college, not even <laughs> once. Like, I don't even know where the office was. 
Um, and so that's something I'm really passionate about doing here is just really encouraging young artists or any young people who are thinking about being artists, like, listen, you can make your own way doing this and it might not look like anyone else's way. So I think artist mentors is just, mm-hmm. you know, such an important thing. I think like artists looking out for one another, you know, helping build community. I mean, that's why I love being your friend is, you know, we always say, oh, let's let's come up with a positive art scheme for mm-hmm. the Valley or, mm-hmm. you know, locally what we do at NCC. So it's just really great to have, you know, these supportive artist relationships. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big thing whenever people are graduating from a program, too, is having a good support system. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had a mentor coming right out of college, um, but I didn't have a whole lot of artist friends. And that's actually something that's been new for me starting in the pandemic. I am so introverted and I am kind of pulled in so many different directions. I admit for the first, I'm going to say like seven years as I've been at Factory, I didn't really form relationships with other artists. I was so private um, and I was just so busy. But the pandemic really taught me to take the time to do that and that you know as you get older you start to get more comfortable with yourself and like feel more outgoing um and that's been just such a gift um getting to know you getting to know some of the other artists at the benefactor a little bit more um and it's what I'm using now to grow so before I was in this job looking at all these older artists and how they're doing it and now it's like all right I look at my colleagues what are they doing and I I admit I'm very challenged by you by the other artists in benefactor by other artists in the valley um, in a good way. I'm really challenged to push myself a little bit more. Um, I definitely see areas where it's like, okay, I need some work. Um, and yeah, I don't know what I do without that community now. And I'm, I'm excited to keep building it now that, you know. Awesome. I love this theme and I love that you both asked it uh, before I even got to it, which is awesome because I, in my full-time, I love this phrase, full-time gig, and it comes up often on this podcast because um, a lot of people make art and then they have full-time gig. Um, But this idea of like peer mentor, peer mentorship is massively, massively important. And especially this is my first time working in like a supervisory role in an educational institution where there are students in art programs that are working through the things that I worked through. And I had great mentors in college, but I didn't have peers that were doing the same kind of work or like working towards the same kind of work that I was doing. So it's really cool to hear from both of you that are in these roles kind of focused on student development and like community development. Um, And the energy that you have behind it is really inspiring and amazing. (laughs) Um, But I wanted to ask like, I was kind of reflecting as you talked about that on uh, I when I started college, I started with a business degree and there's so much structure to that. Right. Like they tell you step A, step B, step C. And then when you're done, you have a job and you have a full time position that resulted from your internship. Right. But that's not something that really exists in the arts or in arts administration. So. My question is, (laughs) um, I'd love to hear from both of you a little bit about your path navigating through this, because for every artist, it's so different. And I think having both of you here um, would be really cool to see if there are things that um, like compare and contrast between both of your journeys. Well, I think the one thing we both have in common is that we are educators at heart. So we are, I'm not going to speak for you, but I know I am like equally as passionate about 
teaching and mentoring young people and young artists, and not even young, just emerging artists in general, as I am about making my art. Um, and so I find that, you know, Katie and I can just kind of, as we said earlier, scheme together a little bit about just creative ways to really broaden our students' exposure to the arts um, and to find really unique ways to teach them different things. Um, but for me, I, I definitely have... I would like to say I've found my home in arts administration, um, whether I'm exactly in that role or not. Um, I definitely have a passion for that. Uh, I'm one of those people that I also, I got a business master's degree. I just kind of use both sides of my brain. Um, and so I really love the organizational administrative stuff and I'm equally passionate about creating that kind of programming that really creates the opportunity for other people to do awesome things, right? Mm -hmm. So I love to do awesome things with my art, but I also like to make other people um, have as many opportunities as possible. So arts administration is something that if you get me on a soapbox to talk about, I'll talk about it all day because I really do think that as many artists as possible should go into that. And it's not really encouraged. Usually there's like, okay, you go to fine art school, you're going to be a fine artist. And not a lot of artists, not a lot of artists are training themselves to take on leadership roles in organizations. So if anyone was at the Juneteenth talk, uh, this past Saturday, I said the same thing. Um, so that's something I'm constantly preaching to my students. Like, listen, we need you in these spaces as well. Um, you may have never heard of this as an option for your career, but please consider it. Yeah, and I think you bring up a lot of really awesome points to that, you know, because I think whenever you get some sort of art degree of any kind, you're getting a degree in creative problem solving. You know, and we need creative problem solving all over the place, you know, whether that be in corporations or whether that be in small businesses or just locally through the community. You know, we need those creative folks to just kind of keep things going and keep the interesting conversations about art and humanities going, mm -hmm. you know. So I, I think that, you know, it's taking the opportunity to make opportunities for other artists or, you know, like Devin was saying, like thinking about being in higher positions of power to help others nurture that arts community. I think that's really important because when you're studying art, you don't necessarily, um, you know, I mean, you can minor in business, but it's not in like an art major or an art master's. It's not built in the curriculum necessarily. So you do have to, you know, kind of figure out what's the most practical approach to being an artist. And I think if, you know, from my teacher's standpoint, one of the biggest pieces of advice I could share is I think it's really important for artists to really know how to write well, mm -hmm. especially when it comes to, you know, grammar, when it comes to uh, grant writing, when it comes to artist statements. I think those things are all, you know, really important. And I think it's crucial for people to really take the time to learn how to do that well. Mm -hmm. That's such a great point. I definitely did not do any of that um, when I was coming out of school. I was always a good writer um, in terms of like essays and things like that. But learning how to talk about my own work, I mean, I'm still on that journey eight, nine years into this. I'm just starting to. And already I'm seeing a shift in how I think about what I'm doing. I'm There's so much more meaning, so much more layers to it that I wouldn't have even gotten to if I didn't just take the time to just write, like even just for myself. Um, and I think now I'm at the point where it's like, right, I'm ready to start writing in a way that's more public. But it just takes time to develop that language and get comfortable really thinking about your work at that level. So that's that's such great advice. 
Yeah, and that's definitely, you know, where the arts community comes in really handy. It's just, you know, bouncing ideas off of your peers or your mentors. And I think just in general, being an artist, you're always a work in progress, no matter what, always evolving and learning, mm-hmm. you know. But it, that's what's so great about our art community in Lehigh Valley is, you know, we have so many different wonderful folks mm-hmm. that are doing great things. Yeah, and something I would love to just kind of say about you, Katie, is that you're very generous. I, I think that, you know, in a, in a town like this, with a lot of artists or town or, or La Valley in general, there can be at times a sense of scarcity, right? Or competition um, because there are only so many places to show, only so many collectors. Um, and I think sometimes that could make people more guarded. But um, when I first started hanging out with you, you were just so generous to teach me like anything. And so you taught me how to do the casting and art, you know, trying to convince me to do some some metal work. Um, and that was that was kind of unusual to me and just very special that you are just like, I want to share what I know with everyone. Um, and that's something I would love to just kind of emulate with others. I don't know if I'm, I want to do that. I don't think I've done that yet, but definitely you're a model for that. And just, just being open, being accessible um, and sharing your wisdom. Well, I definitely see that with you all the time, especially the way you talk about how you mentor students and then, you know, all the stuff you've done with Juneteenth and really, you know, promoting black artists in the area. You know, I love all that that you do, you know, and I have a huge amount of respect and admiration for you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. There is never enough space to talk about um, arts administration, I think, especially because each practice is so unique, but there is not enough structure in educational institutions to support artists the way that they deserve to be supported. Um, And I think that also includes um, rest and personal life and personal time. So I wanted to ask you both, I'm familiar with both of your work and practice, which is very encompassing. Um, You're both very generous with your time and your mentorship. You are amazing educators, but as artists who you depend on this practice and this work to support yourselves and your families, how do you find the time to make space and rest and mindfulness for yourself? Yeah, that's, that's a huge challenge. I think I'm finding that I kind of operate in cycles um, where I can be really out there, really um, kind of involved with the community, come up with ideas, trying to like get a seat at any table possible. And I'm really passionate about that work. But then there's definitely seasons where it's like, I'm just, I'm so tired. I mean, it's hard work, really hard work, especially when we're talking about equity inclusion in the Valley, it's mm-hmm. exhausting. And so What I've kind of done is just I kind of ebb and flow into it. Um, I also have a problem with embracing free time. Uh, I'm I'm learning this about myself and learning to kind of control it a little bit because when I'm not doing something, I feel like I'm wasting time. Um, I've talked to many people who know me about this. And so, like, I take days off so I can do my work. Like, for example, today, like, I'll take a day off so I can do my studio work. Um. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm learning how to appreciate those times of rest and not feel guilty about them, but I'm definitely a work in progress. <laughs> yeah, I feel the same way. I kind of am a bit of a workaholic. So for me to stop and put the brakes on, it takes a bit. Usually it's from being tired from working a lot. <laughs> then I'll say, okay, yeah, I need to take it easy. I'm feeling it. 
you know, and then I'll just, you know, block out some time to make sure that I'm doing that and taking care of myself. You know, uh, having pets helps too. I have two cats. So, you know, sometimes if you go in and visit them, then they force you to take a break because (laughs) they sit on you and refuse to move. So that helps a bit too. So in a, in a similar vein, I'm curious, and I'm asking purely for selfish purposes because I'm a young arts administrator who's still trying to figure it out. But when you work, when you're, I'll use this and I'm doing air quotes, when your full-time gig um, is a position that focuses and takes up a lot of your creative energy, how do you avoid creative burnout? Like how do you save some of this creative energy for your own practice and your own, uh, your own life? That's definitely a great question. (laughs) I I think, um, you know, personally for me, my students are a really good motivator because whenever I have a class, you know, I'm having anywhere from, you know, eight to about 20 different people in the room and everybody comes from different backgrounds, has different ranges of experience, different ideas. And to me, that's really inspirational that I have the opportunity to work with people in that capacity. And I've noticed that kind of helps me, you know, be more motivated if I'm tired or trying to make more work. But then I also make sure that I'm keeping things active in my own mind, you know, whether that be reading something new, watching new movies or, you know, reading up on different interviews or blogs or what have you. Mm -hmm. That way I'm making sure things are staying fresh when it comes to making some new work. Absolutely. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely true that like when you're done with the week at your your full time gig, it I find it very hard to have energy creatively. Um, I said I don't really have an answer to that. I think I'm still learning. But one of the things I've 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 done recently is just kind of listen to myself. Like I I can tell when a creative mood is coming upon me. Like I I can almost like feel a little bit like okay, I'm feeling feeling a little inspired. I'm I'm having some ideas. Maybe I listen to some music or something. And like when I feel that, I make time for it. So like I said, I'll take off or I'll kind of plan to be in the studio in the evening. Um, And I I wish there were more of those times. Um, And hopefully as I continue this, I can cultivate more. But it's really about just responding to like whatever mood I'm in. And it really is a time where it's like, okay, it's a different energy this morning. I can feel it. I can't sit at a desk today. I'm going to take advantage of this time um, mm-hmm. and just, you know, pray that I have as many of those days as possible. <laughs> Absolutely. In a in a similar thread, um, you talked a little bit, of, both of you talked a little bit about, uh, I will call it community scheming <laughs> and this position of advocacy that you take, whether it's advocating for other artists or advocating for artists of color, um, advocating for inclusion specifically in the Lehigh Valley and the climate that we live in. Um, how do you find time and space to do that in all of the amazing things that you're doing already? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, sometimes we just kind of go into each other's studio and say, hey, I have an idea. Mm-hmm. What do you think about this? And usually it's something whether we're thinking about how do we get more art exhibited at NCC mm-hmm. or, you know, what about other opportunities that could kind of pop up in the Valley or that would be really good for people or something just we'd like to see, you know, so that conversation something, you know, Devin and I kind of openly have all mm-hmm. the time. You know, and um, yeah, and I think it's just one of those things when you're really excited about it, Mm -hmm. you figure out how to make the time. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and that's where I can say we really are both truly educators because we just, we have a heart for that and so we make time for it and we're equally passionate about it. I always have that feeling of like, in the back of my mind, like I'm doing this because secretly like this is what, this is the opportunity I wish I had. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what I'd love to see here. Um, I could say that the creativity that goes into the scheming, as we'll call it, definitely is coming from the same pool of creativity as art. So it can it can drain that. And I think for the past few years, what I've done is just really think of them. I, I think of it, think of them both as my art practice, right? So maybe I'm not working in my studio this week, but I'm just doing some kind of organizing or programming or something. Um, but yeah, it's limited resources. And I mean, I definitely have struggled with burnout. Um, and there's so much pressure, especially when we're talking about inclusion and especially creating spaces for, for people of color in the Valley. It just feels like such a, a huge task. Um, and it's hard to do when you have a full-time gig as well. And that's why I always say, that's why my soapbox is really like, can we train other people to also do this work mm-hmm. so that it's not just falling on the shoulders of a couple artists who happen to be passionate about it? Because it's just not sustainable. Um, we need young people who are excited about it to you know, be in these internships, to take these entry-level jobs. Um, because it's emotion- it is really emotionally draining as well. And there's a lot of pressure um, I don't think it's external pressure. I definitely think it's just coming from myself. Like I really put that pressure on myself to try to share any bit of privilege I feel like I've had, which I I can admit is is quite a lot in my life. So I almost just feel this responsibility to just do what I can to share it um, and to help other people kind of, you know, flourish in the same way. Uh, But yes, it's really draining. That's why I talk about those seasons of time where it's like, and I'll apologize to to all my community here like there's times when I just withdraw like I just I can't talk about it like I'm done with my programs I just need a rest um so again yeah I'm just I'm figuring out that balance because it can be heavy sometimes I don't think it's something you have to apologize for (laughs) I think it's uh often something that like as people who work in the arts and Mm -hmm. as women who work in the arts like really struggle with is like finding that time for yourself mm-hmm. and taking the space. So mm-hmm. don't apologize for it. <laughs> yeah, and it's because we we care, right? Like right. we care so much. Mm-hmm. I don't know why we care so much. <laughs> and I think the people who tend to care find each other. Mm-hmm. Um, like, for example, this table right now, um, we find each other and we scheme together and we support each other. Um, but yeah, sometimes it's like exhausting to care. <laughs> like, But that's you can't help it, right? Thank you both so much for sharing all of this work that you're doing in the community, but uh, we are also here to talk about your artistic practice. Um, So whoever would like to go first, but I was hoping you could just uh, explain a little bit about the work that you do in your creative process. So a lot of the work I do questions women's roles in history and uh, throughout contemporary culture. I use a lot of imagery that's heavily associated with women and femininity. So a lot of things like pink or ribbon or bows, a lot of really girly, dainty imagery. And I pair that with things that are very heavy and industrial as a way to take back that imagery and take ownership of it. Wonderful. And I 
if you could just expand a little bit upon some of like the mediums that you use when you talk about like industrial spaces and um, industrial materials. Sure. Uh, I do a lot of work in cast metal, particularly iron, bronze, but then I've also done a lot of work in digital media as well. I work at NCC's Fab Labs, so I use laser cutters and plasma cutters all the time, uh, plastic casting, a little bit of wood, woodworking, and uh, welding is one of my favorite things to do as well. And I also do some drawing work, but I'm more in sculpture than I would be in, in drawing. But I still kind of jump between the media quite a bit, and I also do a little bit of printmaking as well. Wonderful. Yeah, so I am definitely a 2D girl. Um, it's funny because I actually majored in ceramics in college um, because I just did not like my painting classes that much. And for all these different reasons, I just didn't really feel like it was a fit. Um, and I found a home in the in the clay department with um, just some really interesting classmates. And so that was obviously what I studied in school. But when I came back to Lehigh Valley, I just found it easier to dive back into painting. So my work is primarily painting, primary collage um, is mostly abstract. Now I did start off doing figurative, um, but now it's abstract because I find that it's um, a better vehicle to kind of get across the things I'm trying to get across. Very colorful. Anyone who's seen my work can, uh, they always say it's like, oh, it's so colorful. It's like tropical, blah, blah, blah. So um, <laughs> it definitely has that vibe. Um, and I, am learning to use new materials. So one of the things Katie taught me was casting. And lately I've been really obsessed with transparency and translucency in my work. I really love stained glass and the way light um, interplays with color. So that's kind of what I'm working on in terms of materials. Um, but in terms of what my work's about, you know, you caught me on a really good day. Um, first of all, it's <laughs> one of those creative days, right? So I was in the studio today. Um, and then yesterday I actually had some time to do some writing. So I'm, I'm like kind of, pulling these thoughts together now. Um, but I would say that my work is at this point very much about interpreting what it means to have this experience as um, a Colombian American, African American, a Jamaican American, um, to have all these mix of things, to have grown up where I grew up, which for the first half of my childhood was actually New Jersey, um, where I was the only um, black or, or Latina in, in like the town. Um, so like making sense of this experience of kind of always being a bit of an outsider and like being okay with that, but like always being different, um, always having to kind of create this identity for myself. So um, yesterday I was actually listening to this song, it came out a few years ago um, by this group called Orishas and they're a Cuban band and they were just talking about, you know, longing for their homeland of Cuba because at that point they were um, in, in Europe. And that idea of homeland really struck me because the emotions they were conveying in the music about this, like this longing, this nostalgia, um, this sense of community and love for their people, like I could relate to those emotions, but this is my homeland, right? So it's like this weird paradox where I'm longing for something that I never really had. Um, and so I really feel like my work is expressing that 
Um, and also creating space for that longing and interpreting like, what is that? Because it isn't just a longing for my maternal grandmother's homeland of Colombia. Like that is not really it. It's just almost like this mythological kind of placemaking for myself. Like I'm creating a story. I'm creating a visual language that can kind of make sense of this, these feelings, these kind of aesthetic impulses that I have, right? Like this attraction to color, to plants, to um, anything that's kind of like pre-Columbian or African, right? And so it's like taking all of these different visual influences and kind of mixing them up and coming up with a language that can, for me, communicate what that emotion is, that longing, um, and also that love for, you know, these cultures that I've grown up in, in part, I've grown up in kind of looking from a distance. Um, yeah, and just and making sense of that. So, Well, thank you. And I, I want to talk a little bit, too. I know you've both, we've talked about, like, full-time gigs and educational responsibilities um, and mentorship responsibilities. But in terms of your artwork, what does your creative process look like? I know you both nodded towards this kind of, like, cyclical, seasonal relationship to art making. Um, but I'm curious, like, start to finish on a piece, maybe what what does your creative process look like? Mm. I can start because I am very impatient. I'm a very impatient artist, um, which I think is why I've been attracted to collage, because I can do all the work ahead of time, right? I can kind of plan ahead, like, these are all the colors and textures I want, and then have them done so that when I'm in one of those very rare, precious creative modes, I can... Um, just kind of create something really quickly. So I tend to be there, be in the studio maybe one day for eight hours and knock out a piece. I don't really like pieces that take multiple days in the studio because the energy I'm bringing is different. So my process is definitely very intuitive, um, very much responding to whatever emotions or music I'm listening to at the moment. Um, and it is very, it is very much just an expression of like, all right, this is what I have to get out right now. And it's also playful um, because it's abstract, because it's collage. I, I almost treat it as a game. Like, all right, this color's on. Like, hmm, what would go next? And how do I fit, how do I create this puzzle, right? Um, there's another side of me that wants to be a little bit more structured, um, that wants to take on some bigger challenges in terms of the materials I'm using. Um, so I work a lot on stretch canvases because again, I'm impatient, but there's, <laughs> things I can't do with that medium. So I, I talked to Katie about like, all right, how can I build this kind of thing to do to create this kind of effect? Um, and I want to get to that point um, where I'm like a little bit more methodical uh, and conceptual about each piece. But again, like those creative moments are so precious that usually like when I'm in them, like I just need to make something. And so I don't know, like maybe the next season will be different. Maybe the, I don't know next or a season in the future will be different where I can be a little bit more structured and methodical, a little bit more complex with my work. But right now it's very much of just like, just intuitive play in the studio. Wonderful. Yeah, and I'm, I'm a little bit of the opposite because of my, um, my, a lot of the processes I need to use to make my work take a good amount of time to do. So I have to plan things out step by step. So if I'm doing mold making and casting, you know, that's a, a process that could take several days in order to get a final product. So 
everything I, I tend to do doesn't seem to be quite as intuitive. There are times I, I do let improvisation kind of happen, but for the most part, you know, I have to calculate everything out and I really plan out the concepts, you know, and I'm constantly asking myself, okay, you know, what kind of feel or view do I want my audience to have when they're looking at my work? So there's constantly this push and pull between the viewer and the conversation I'm trying to have with them as the artist. So a lot of times I'll make a lot of tests with materials too. So sometimes I'll even come up with an idea for a piece and I'll make it up to five times until it feels right. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm shaking my head because, oh my gosh, like I'm so the opposite. I, I will like just dive into a huge four by five, six by six foot canvas. And that is my study. And that is it. Like someone asked me that once, like, aren't you going to like do a smaller version just to make sure it's like, no, I do not have the patience. So very opposite ways of working. <laughs> I was, I was curious because I, both of your practices are quite different. Um, but how does like, physical space or like space to create play into the work that you do and the art that you make? That's an excellent question. <laughs> I, I, I love that question because uh, as a sculpture person, that's a challenge sculptors usually have to answer quite a bit. And a lot of my friends in the sculpture field, they tend to work very large or they're making 700 pound iron castings. And I don't have the ability to work that large. And frankly, I don't really feel like that's the best fit for me. I tend to work small, but with pieces that could potentially build up and be larger and become an installation because that way, practicality wise, I can stack up a piece and I can put it in somewhere small and then have it be large when it needs to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have, I have a great space and it's, it's pretty large. It's not really an issue of space so much as like access to like you're saying, kind of more sculpture facilities and not just access to them, but also training on them. So yes, I went to an art school that had all of the above, but I, and we talked about this a bit earlier, I was always so intimidated by the wood shop. So I, I took one sculpture class. I lasted a week and I was like, we did welding. I'm like, I'm out of here <laughs> because like, I'm someone that like, I need to be shown a few times and I need you to watch me do it and make sure I'm doing it right. Cause I'm a bit of a perfectionist. Um, and so I think what's been, I've found as a limitation here is just, I am able to do what I can do in my studio. That's easy. That's quick. Um, I do believe like I could, I could see myself creating really different kinds of work that are really stretching those boundaries of just like, you know, a rectangle on a wall. Um, but I don't have necessarily the comfort, the training, the access, um, to those things. I always, you know, I watch like R21 and I see like, you know, they work with fabricators and have assistants. I'm like, oh God, maybe someday. Like <laughs> I have all these ideas, but like, and we talked about this with the carpenter the other day. Like I would love to be able to do it, but realistically, like I'm not going to be a master carpenter. Like that's not going to happen. Um, and so it was helpful like to work with you at, at NCC and to learn how to do the casting because something I can do in my space. Um, but eventually like I would love it to be, I would love more, but um, yeah, that's, Sculpture is expensive and it's intimidating. So I, I don't know how you do it, but I definitely admire you for it. Well, I think with um, sculpture in particular and just, you know, teaching sculpture in like 3D design over the last few years, 
I think it's really important to, in particular, make a shop environment very comfortable for students, you know, because you are working with dangerous equipment and, you know, you really have to stress the students, you know, be careful. You really have to take your time and, you know, really learn these steps, you know, and I make sure personally I'm there with them every single step of the way. But I also tell the students too, you know, if you're not feeling comfortable, you know, want you watch somebody a few times and then, you know, I'll talk you through every step. And I tell students, you know, if you need me to stand there with you all day while you're learning how to use a tool, I'd be more than happy to help you out, mm-hmm. you know? And I think if more people, you know, kept that culture with shop culture, I think that would make sculpture a little bit more accessible too. And I also think, you know, on the note of accessibility, I think that's something to really consider too, because one thing that I find kind of unfortunate with the sculpture field is it tends to lean more toward able-bodied folks. Yeah. And if there's ways we can make it more accessible for more people, you know, just across the board, I think that would really help with more people taking interest in sculpture because it is really fascinating and cool, but I have a huge bias because I work in it. So, <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure it's very physically taxing too, right? Like it's, I've s- seen stuff on your Instagram and I'm like, wow, I'm not sure I could handle that. Uh, <laughs> but that's a really, really great point. And um, something I'm curious as artists and educators, if you have run into is, um, just in general, like the inaccessibility of financial access to the materials you want to create with, but might not have the capability or the space to do. And it's hard because if you don't have that formal art education, or if you don't have that ability to educate yourself in that way, like how do people find time and space to, to learn these things? It's very difficult. Mm -hmm. I'll just jump in because that is what I am most passionate about figuring out. So I, one of the things I would love to do and what I, I think I'll probably spend my entire career doing is like, how do you bring that education you would get in art school or in an MFA program and how do you make it success, accessible to other people in the community who maybe didn't have access to that kind of training? Um, I do believe it's possible, mm-hmm. um, but you know, it takes creating structures, it takes figuring out funding and all the arts administrative stuff to to figure out how to make this happen. So I definitely don't have an answer for it, but man, <laughs> that's that's what I'm most passionate about because I really, like, I love art and I find it so valuable and I, I want to see what people can make. Like, I want to see what people can do and that means equipping them as best as possible. Um, and so, yeah, I think it, it takes people really working towards that goal to make that make that happen. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you mentioned that we're talking about like larger systems, whether that be like, you know, even like businesses in the Valley, Mm -hmm. arts organizations in the Valley, you know, if there's basically if there's people of power that are willing to give funds toward, you know, these up and coming artists or, you know, different outreach opportunities for artists to be able to educate themselves and learn more, Mm -hmm. you know, I think a lot of it has to come from there and then plus you know people you know like Devin like you know working um you know being able to mentor other Mm -hmm. folks into you know having these opportunities you Mm -hmm. know so I think it's a combination of several folks trying to get these resources out to the people that need them Mm -hmm. yeah it's really about creating those system and structures so um 
if I may take a soapbox moment, soapbox moment, I, uh, I've recently been thinking about how arts are funded um, and how they tend to go to these large arts institutions and then funnel down. And I think that's one of the biggest problems, right? If you are just starting out or you don't have access, you don't have financial means, like you can't apply for these big ticket calls or anything like that. Um, and it makes me think of, because I worked very, very briefly in like the um, kind of like fair trade import kind of space and the concept of microloans. Um, and like, could something like that happen here where there's maybe smaller budgets that are given to people for different projects in the Valley, right? Because right now it's very hard to get access to funding mm -hmm. um, without an institutional backing. And so one of those things that I, I think institutions can do better is creating those opportunities for artists to have funds. Like, mm -hmm. please pay artists well. And we all say this all the time, but like $50 doesn't cut it. Um, and really like listening to artists about what they need and then mentoring them on like, all right, how do you put together a budget? Like, and really walking them through the project, a little bit of project management, all those things. Um, but I really believe like we'd have a much richer arts community if we were more intentional about letting people take chances and being okay if it fails, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. instead of spending 10 grand on something, maybe you're just giving a thousand dollars and mentoring someone through the project. Um, but one of one of the things that I, I get so frustrated with is just institutions who think that they could do the arts or or create arts in the community for everyone. It's like, well, why don't you just like create ways for the community to do it for themselves? Mm -hmm. And I hate the word community because we all hear it so much. But I mean, you know, the young artists are young artists out there who are interested in in taking a risk and doing a public art piece and doing a mural, like can we support those ideas instead of just saying like, oh, we have all this money, you're gonna do we're going to do what we want to do. Mm -hmm. um, so that that's my soapbox. I think that's a big part of creating more accessibility here. Yeah, I think that's such a, I think about this so much that it's such a business-centric business model and standard that like artists and even arts organizations are held to where there has to be output, right? And it has to look good and it has to use the money correctly and it has to be shown that you use the money in this way when in reality, that's not how artists work. And it's not, it's like super and like not applicable to the way that artists operate. And it's so frustrating that like, whether it's funding structures or programming structures, like live in this world of like constant evaluation and constant output focused planning where like everything has to have an end to it. Right. When again, it's just not how, <laughs> not how things in the arts industry should operate. It's so frustrating and difficult to navigate. Mm -hmm. That's why artists and arts and institutions tend to be at odds with each other because mm -hmm. really the artist is looking at the process about what's learned about who's collaborating. Um, and everything that goes kind of into a work of art. And yeah, institutions are focused on the bottom line. And that's why we need artists who can also be in leadership positions, who understand that difference and, and can value that difference. Mm -hmm. Not just tolerate it, but really see it as like, this is what's worthwhile. This is what's worth funding. Because um, that vision just doesn't exist at these higher levels. And if we're always beholden to, you know, these, these donors or these different... Um, different funds and things like that, then like we're, we're never going to get out of that cycle. Mm -hmm. So 
I mean, either we, we mentor people to get to those spaces or somehow we demand things to change. Mm-hmm. I've been working at the ladder for a while and I feel like that's <laughs> really hard. It's, you know, keep on fighting the fight right now. I just, let me, I'm going to just focus on mentorship right now. Um, but we definitely need a combination of both because these systems have to change and people have to be willing to think outside the box. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know what is so scary. Like, it is art. <laughs> like, it is one of the greatest things that we create as human beings, like, it is meant to be fun and beautiful and challenging and interesting and risky, problematic, like all these things. And like embracing that instead of just like, all right, how do we make, how do we make a bottom line? Like if you are coming at the arts with that, like I understand, like I'm a practical person. (laughs) I know business is a thing. I know bottom lines are a thing, but the business model has to shift so that there's room for that, that artistic play because it's just everything is just contrived if not mm-hmm. I shouldn't say everything that's harsh um again I'm on my soapbox there are some <laughs> great things happening with our institutions um and thank you you're at an institution right like for doing that work we're both at institutions <laughs> like I'm, I'm part of the problem too um so it's not to say that like everything that's being done is worthless but I just think that I'd like to challenge my colleagues in arts administration to to be a little bit riskier think outside the box and and really demand some change Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I'd like to challenge people, too, to, like, think about your role in your organization and reflect on this term, like, arts administration. I think a lot of people are put in positions because they're of their artistic experience and or because of their business prowess or whatever. But, like, when in reality, the work that you're doing is arts administration, so you're advocating not only for the place that you work, but advocating for artists in the Valley. And I think that that's... Um, like an important thing to recognize when you're working somewhere. And also to remember that artists are multidimensional people, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So like we all know that we can do a lot of amazing things, right? We have all these different skills. A lot of us, because we have day jobs, have all of these interesting areas of expertise. And I think those of us who don't have access to artists or friends with artists, maybe not don't realize that. So Mm -hmm. they fall into the stereotype like, oh, this artist, like, you know, the moody artist who's broke, who's in their studio, who, you know, all of that, like, no, actually we have like such amazing talent in the Valley, so much expertise. And like, if institutions could just think a little bit more about like what artists could offer besides just being an artist and having a studio um, and really using them for the skills they have. Mm -hmm. Right. And not just kind of putting us in a box and like, that's all we do. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I would just encourage I would encourage institutions to do that because you're missing out on a a wealth of information. We have an amazing community here. Well, I don't want to leave here without talking about the work that you shared um, with us, which is really beautiful and amazing. Um, And if it's okay, I'll start with Katie's work and then we can talk a little bit about it. Uh, For those that are tuning in for the first time, um, something that we try to do with all the visual artists on the show is create audio descriptions for each of the work that they share with us. Audio description is a service created originally um, for people who are blind and low vision to help communicate uh, a visual description of whatever you're looking at to the person um, who is blind or low vision. So today, um, Katie has shared with us her piece, Landmine Pie, by Katie Hovenkamp, done in 2021, made of cast iron, fabric, wood, and anthracite coal. 
This work resembles a pie made entirely of cast iron, which is semi-shiny and dark gray in color and appearance. The pie is round and has a crisscross top with a braided edge around the outside. The pie sits on top of coal dust and a wooden doily with pointed edges. On the left edge of the pie, a small red triangular flag on a long skinny pole reads, Danger. The pieces I've been making along the lines of the landmine pie have been based on this concept I've been working with for the last two, going on three years now. It's a, a concept called kitchen war room. So it's as if, you know, the apocalypse happened and all you had left was your kitchen to defend yourself. So in response to that concept, I've been making a series of food weapons and weapons that would come out of your kitchen. So another piece I created a while ago was a cookie cutter flail. So it's on a, it's a piece of round wood and it has cookie cutters hanging on a chain. And in theory, you could use it to defend yourself. So <laughs> uh, the landmine pie is like that. I've also made a cupcake bomb. And, you know, currently that piece is on display at the Dunning Gallery at Northampton Community College's Tannersville campus at Monroe if you wanted to see that in person. Wonderful. I loved visiting your studio and seeing some of the other pieces that are part of this collection as they were being created. Um, but the one thing I really, really liked was the wallpaper, I, I'll call it like wallpaper that you have in your studio over mm -hmm. at Banana Factory. Um, and I'm curious like how that how that plays into this series or if it's even part of it. Yeah, a lot of my work, I've always been really interested in installation art and being able to take up large expanses of space to create an environment for the sculptural and even the drawing pieces I make. And one thing that I really wanted to do was figure out a way I could bring some of my drawing work into my installation work and tie it in with the sculpture work somehow, because I always felt like my drawing work was very separate from my sculpture work. So one of my challenges was how can I bridge all these things together? So I started creating the weapons and I started making these illustrations of women holding the weapons and I decided let me put it into you know a wallpaper because I wanted to make a room space that felt you know very specific to my work and I always found wallpaper itself really fascinating I think during the pandemic when everybody was locked into their houses you know that really kind of put a big influence on my work because of all the domestic themes I had to encounter every day because I couldn't leave my house because of COVID. Mm -hmm. So that influenced a lot of the work that I started making. So those domestic themes of, of using wallpaper, I, I think about how that plays in with women's roles and how women, you know, historically were meant to be seen and not heard. And it almost feels like that with wallpaper. Wallpaper is kind of like a camouflaging or a way to blend things in. So I play around with that concept quite a bit. It's funny because looking at that work in this collection of work, and I don't want to diminished by offering comparison, um, but a piece that I was shown early in my art history education, uh, gosh, I can't remember the title now, but it's the Judy Chicago piece that she installed in a house. Um, it's called like Woman House. Woman House, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that was immediately what I kind of thought of when looking at your work was like this very potent in your face, like demonstration of um, femininity crossed with this like very industrial, like male-dominated materiality. And I just like, 
Huh, I love it. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, yeah, that's, that's a spot on comparison, actually. A, there's a similar <laughs> energy, a similar attitude to it. It's just like, yeah, I could, I could see Katie do something similar to that for sure. It's just that same impulse of like humor, boldness, a little bit of like, you know, in your face. I, I love that. Yeah, a little bit of shock value. Mm -hmm. I think it's like mm -hmm. definitely, definitely the feeling. In terms of just that this desire to create a space mm. i don't know if that's maybe the sculpture brain coming into play and maybe that's because i have a little bit of that from my ceramics upbringing like for me it's never quite sufficient to have a painting on a wall like i am very interested in transforming a whole space so when you walk into my studio it's definitely like it's almost like each of the paintings it just becomes one whole thing on a wall and i really want to control like the whole ambiance of the room like Every experience, every item in it, like, is kind of saying the same thing. It's almost curated to say, to act as one piece. Mm. Um, so I don't know. Would you say something that kind of sculptors think of? It's just controlling the space. Yeah. Right? Thinking more than, thinking outside of just the object itself. Yeah, I think, you know, when I studied sculpture, it was constantly thinking about, you know, your space, your viewer, what's it look like in the 360? Mm -hmm. I know my mentor from grad school, Bonnie Calora, would always say that to us, you know, think about the sculpture in the round, walk around the room, you know, and then my other mentor, Kristen Millett, you know, she was an installation artist. So she would have us be really aware of everything in a room. She would even say, how does the floor feel? you know, when you're looking at the artwork. Mm -hmm. So those kind of things are things I think about as I'm mm -hmm. making pieces a lot. So space mm -hmm. is always a constant. Mm -hmm. Space and, and the viewer experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that comparison because um, I know you talked about, Devin, in your work that uh, your work is particularly focused on s space or even like I think the word you use is like mythological space, like a longing for a place or a space that maybe you haven't experienced or doesn't exist in your current reality, but something that um, either ancestrally or um, in like a family community exists, um, which I think really speaks to the piece that you shared with us today. Um, so if it's okay, I'll read the audio description for it and then we can jump right in. The title is De Una Memoria Zamba by Devin Lenore Briggs, done in 2021. It is acrylic and hand-painted collage on canvas, 36 inches by 36 inches. The square painting is made in collage style. Some layers are brushy in texture, done with oil pastels, layered in purple, light blue, red, and dark blue. Layered over top is a colorful composition of amorphous shapes and recognizable imagery, such as a small cutout orange vase, a purple flower, and several simplified faces shown in profile view. Shapes and imagery are continually layered and overlapping in this piece. So I, f I feel like maybe my description doesn't really convey truly how colorful this piece is. And you mentioned before, as soon as Katie was done talking, you're like, I'm a 2D artist, but like this has so much texture to it. It's really quite beautiful. Yeah, that's actually, that's a fair observation because I really like the 2D format, but I'm also very interested in materials um, and really like appreciating the materials for what they are, like their textures and the different way light hits them. So yeah, in a sense, because I of my clay background, like I am thinking of of the collage in that kind of way, um, and you know there is there's a lot of color on these. And what's interesting about this piece is that 
it's one of the few collages that has recognizable objects. Um, I don't usually do that. I think I was trying my hand at it because one of the things I've been trying to do this past year really is find a way to fuse my sculptural work with the painting work, um, which is why I took up casting, which I'm, I'm trying different things. Um, I think this piece is a great balance. I love this one. I think it succeeded. But in general, I don't like when there's anything recognizable. So this is actually an exception to the rule. Um, typically, these amorphous forms, like they really are kind of part of like a visual vocabulary I've created. They're not necessarily as concrete as like a language or vocabulary, but they act in a similar way in that the forms are referencing other forms from mm -hmm. like our history, from African art, from pre-Columbian art. Um, from the patterns on textiles from Africa and Latin America, right? So they're like referencing very subtly different things um, and kind of bringing with them those pieces of meaning. Uh, and that that's why most of my pieces have, have those forms because I, at this point, don't really know exactly what I'm saying, um, but I know the language I want to say it in. So that's what these collage ones are. But yeah, I want to say something too about the title. All my titles are in Spanish. Um, and for those of you who know me, probably know that I don't speak Spanish very often, although I can. Um, and But for me, because so much of my inspiration comes from Latin America and Latin American music, it feels very true to me to have the, the titles in Spanish. It's a chance for me to play with the language in a way that spoken, I just do not have the confidence to do. Mm. Um, and so I remember my husband finally looked at the titles of my pieces for once, because he never does that, right? He sees me make them like whatever. He likes my art, but he doesn't like look that in that much detail. And so he was reading some of the titles. It's like, these are really outlandish and funny. He's like, you're not like that. I'm like, I know that's why it's the title for art, because I can't express that like in my person. Like I can't speak that way. I don't I'm too self-conscious at this point. Hopefully I'll get out of it um, to like have that kind of humor and fun with the language. But the titles let me do that. Um, so that's why I tend to stick with them in Spanish because the meaning, you know, you can probably get it if you don't understand Spanish anyway. And the translation, sometimes I put the translations, but it just, it doesn't feel the same. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of where the origin of that title came from. I like to have fun with that. And the term Zamba, like, I mentioned earlier comes from kind of like Latin American racial kind of caste practices. Um, and it was just a term of someone who was like both indigenous and, and of African descent. Um, and this piece really probably more recognizably than most has kind of elements of both. So that's why I chose that title. Wonderful. So you mentioned that this piece is one of few that does have recognizable imagery. Um, and the one image that I, or form, maybe this isn't even uh, what you refer to as recognizable imagery, but the thing I was most drawn to in this piece was this kind of like salmon colored uh, form that's up in the top left. And it's almost like, it reminded me of bubbles almost where they're like connected. It's like a trail of these circular figure uh, circular shapes that are all connected and then have like cutouts on opposing sides of it as it cascades down. But um, I'm curious, like in collage work, I think sometimes things are cut out because you see that in the paper and that's what you want to cut out or in opposition, you, you don't see it and you just cut it out because it's something you were looking for, like super intentional um, in terms of shape. So I'm curious with some of these less recognizable shapes in this, which uh, 
which did you more connect with or draw from? Yeah, it's sort of a combination of both. Um, because I paint on these pieces of paper and Duralar, oftentimes I am kind of seeing the shapes emerge from those brushstrokes. Um, and so I will cut them out based on what I see. But then like something else happens when I'm finding a placement for it. And so what I was finding with that particular shape and a couple of the other ones is that um, they almost reference re the really sculptural quality of like black hair traditions, right? And like just really cool shapes of like braids and buns and all kinds of things. And so I had these shapes and I found that when I put them right next to kind of these silhouettes, it just reminded me of that, of these like extravagant headpieces and hairstyles. Um, because that's something that I'm I'm very interested in playing around with. Like I like to wear scarves and all, and do all kinds of stuff with my hair. So, um, I just thought that was a kind of a cool way to use that shape that I did create intuitively. So it's really a combination of both. I think one thing that I really admire about your work is every time I look at your pieces, like it feels like they're atmospheric, you know. And I think a lot of that's accomplished by the way you're using that layering. Mm -hmm. You know, um, like it almost feels like I'm I'm in some sort of like forest situation where I can go through all these different layers of like plants and and whatnot, you know, and then the colors are just super bright, like celebratory, kind of inviting, you know, so I always love work, looking at your work. Mm -hmm. That is spot on. I'm like shaking my head vis <laughs> like visibly because that is what I'm going for with these, right? It is a bit of like walking into like this jungle i always think of like the mythical makondo like walking in there and like what are the things you're encountering what is the mood like yes there's color and intensity and life but then there is also like some some darkness some mystery um and that's where i'm really interested in that play of light and so the duralar has really helped me do that because i can layer these transparent materials or really thin glazes of paint to kind of create that that atmospheric space um and that's exactly what i'm trying to explore more with these new materials um is that quality but i'm i'm so like thrilled that you picked up on that feeling both of you because that is what i was going for so that kind of warms my heart a little bit wonderful and i had the pleasure since you submitted quite a few pieces um of looking at some of your other work but do you feel that this feeling of like or this general appearance of like color in combination with mystery is a common thread in your work or do you think that's kind of unique to this piece oh no that's definitely a common thread oh my goodness yeah um everything i do has really vibrant colors um i mean and i have had to defend that a lot over the course of my career and i've had to explain it to myself too like why do i keep going to this like is it a crutch is it just you know i just like color but no I, each of those colors like has a meaning and you know in cultures in Latin America and Africa, like no one's ashamed of color, right? There's never too much color. Um, and so, yeah, that's just the through line in the work. And the mystery part, it's kind of speaking to that bit of that spiritual quality. So again, like I'm feeling these things, I'm listening to this music, like I am experiencing this space that doesn't exist. And so um, I try to create that ethereal spiritual quality to it because it isn't concrete, it doesn't exist in reality. So both of you, thank you so much for coming and sharing your 
about your process and your artwork and your expertise in this field. And I want to make sure people uh, can find you and your work outside of this auditory program. So if people want to find you or look at your work, either in person and online, where is a good per- um I'm sorry. If people want to find you or look at your work in person or online, where is a good place to do that? Uh, I can start. So I do have work up at the Minute Factory. So um, on my suit on second floor, I have a gallery wall outside of my room. Um, there's also going to be work in the resident artist exhibition at the Banana Factory in the fall. And then also first Fridays at Banana Factory. Y'all, please come on out and visit because sometimes it's a little slow and I, I love to interact with people on those days. And I do quite a setup, so um, you can definitely see most of my work there. And then, again, no other exhibitions at this time, but you can find it on my website, which is devlenorebreaks.com, um, and on my Instagram, at devlenorebreaks. Awesome. And that's uh, dot com. And uh, like Devin, I have work up at the Banana Factory as well. And um, please come by and visit on First Friday. We definitely love having visitors come up and talk about the work. Uh, currently, I've got some work up at uh, Northampton Community College Monroe campus in the Dunning Gallery. Uh, my solo exhibition's up till the end of the month. And then uh, coming up in the fall, we'll have the annual artist exhibition at the Banana Factory. So both Devin and I will be in that exhibition as well. Wonderful. And I have your website here. It's katiehovencamp.com. Mm-hmm. K-A-T-I-E-H-O-V-E-N. C-A-M-P.com and your Instagram is the same, correct? Yep, at Katie Hovenkamp. Wonderful. Well, again, thank you both so much for your time this evening and it was a pleasure talking to both of you. Thanks for creating this space. It was awesome. Yeah, thank you for having us. It was wonderful. Thanks for tuning in to the Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast, a Steel Pixel original series. Don't forget to like the podcast, leave us a review, and follow us on both social media and streaming services at Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast. Mm -hmm.